1974 big screen version of The Little Prince, which we went over in part one of this two-parter, was not a success. Mixed reviews, and perhaps more importantly, a half-hearted release by Paramount Pictures doomed the movie to relative obscurity. Little Prince producer Joseph Tannett then doubled down in a sense, bringing the story to Broadway in a 1982 production that never officially opened. Tandit never did produce another picture, though he did produce a revival of Born Yesterday on Broadway that, interestingly enough, was under the name of Little Prince Productions. And there were no more Little Prince movies after 1974. Adaptations to stage, television, and radio happened, but another movie? That wasn't in the cards. Not for decades. Not until 2011, when a pair of French producers... Eitan Samouche and Dimitri Rassam, whose names I'm probably butchering, were announced as leading a new production of The Little Prince. And this new production was going to have an old partner in its release, Paramount Pictures. And just like in 1974, things didn't turn out as intended. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're taking a look at the second attempt to bring The Little Prince to American movie audiences. Plus, a look at the current attempt to bring The Little Prince to finally open on Broadway. Welcome to the industry. The next time The Little Prince would be adapted into a film, it was finally done in the way you might expect. It was animated. And here are the people behind this version knew exactly who they wanted for the job. Mark Osborne, the co-director of the smash hit Kung Fu Panda. And coincidentally enough, The Little Prince was something that meant a whole lot to Mark. I don't know if you could see this, but this is an inscription on the copy of the book. Um, and this is uh, the copy of the book that I was given back in college when I, I was dating, uh, fell in love with a woman. And when I moved to Cal Arts, when I moved to California to pursue animation, we, we had to kind of split up. And so she gave me her copy of the book as a way to kind of keep us connected. And so, so oddly enough, yeah, the book was very important to me because it kept us connected. There's quite a, quite a story. You know, we now have two kids. This is, you know, the, the book, we ended up back together. This copy of the book is what we read to our kids. Like, you know, so for, for me, the book had a lot of magic and significance in my life. And with the book having so much significance in his life, you'd think that Mark would have jumped at the chance to make an animated version of his magic book. But when the offer came, he turned it down. He just couldn't see how you could adapt that book because he sees it like a poem. It's short, there's not a lot of plot, and there's certainly not enough to make a feature-length film out of. I actually woke up the next day after saying no, and I couldn't stop thinking about the book, and I couldn't stop thinking about the quote, you know, what is essentialism visible to the eye? And I started, I, I just... I started thinking like, well, you know, they're going to pursue making this movie and they're going to make it with somebody. And I started to think like, maybe there's a way I can protect the book by making a movie that is going to honor the book. So Mark has this idea to, as he puts it, protect the book. And that idea is to use a wraparound story. The Little Prince becomes a story within a bigger story. Yes, the full story to The Little Prince is there in its entirety, but rather than pad out scenes to make a 90-minute runtime, Mark will create a new story to go around it. This new story will be about a little girl whose life is affected by the book. So there's sort of a two-for-one thing going on. 
you get the story of The Little Prince, a book that has affected so many people for decades. And you get a story about that exact thing, about how the book can affect and change a person. What I pitched back to them was like, let's keep the book the beating heart of the movie. And, and I said, I want to build a story around the book about how the book affects someone's life, how the story changes the course of your life. And I said, because that, of all the experiences that people have with the book, and you know anything about the book, you know it was, it's, it's worldwide and every language and every culture and everybody has a different reason why they're drawn to the book. But the common, when I really started looking at it, I said, the thing that we all have in common is that the book gets to us and it changes us and it, it speaks to us and we speak to it and it becomes a conversation. And it like, so, so for me, I was like, well, let's tell a story about somebody's life being changed by the book. And the deeper I got into it, the more it started to really connect more with my own life and my own experience. The movie was intended to be a standard CGI animated film, but Mark had a different idea, at least for the little print section. And the way he decided to do that was to use stop-motion animation. When I was approached by the producers, they said, we want to make a big CG animated movie. And I was just like, mm, I don't know. I said, I don't think that's the right medium, you know, because it's, again, it's a poem. It's a, it's a work of art and CG can be so commercial and crass. And there's so many ways CG animation can go wrong. But when I started thinking thematically about the book and I started thinking about adulthood and childhood and I started thinking about the, the differences and, and the different themes that exist within the book. And I started thinking about, that was one of the big ideas that I went back and pitched the producers on. I said, well, what if, you know, the book is preserved and protected and enveloped in this medium that really speaks to the heart and soul of, like with the soul of the movie could be better represented with this handmade artistic process that, Everybody sees as magic. You know, when you see stop motion, it's like magic. It just speaks to you in a way that's different than other kinds of animation. And I said, so if the book was protected in that medium, and then we use the larger story about this world that doesn't benefit from the story, this world that has become too grown up. I should point out that Mark has a history with stop motion animation as well. His 1998 stop motion short film called More won numerous awards and was nominated for an Oscar. But the whole thing is actually a commentary about uh, is about the animation industry. And that, uh, you know, the fact that I was being asked to make it in CG because that's what sells and stop motion doesn't sell, it was really meant to be a, a commentary and that the little girl in the world that's too grown up in this toxic world that she lives in, and she needs the book. And the book comes into her life as this work of art that she imagines as something that is very handmade and very beautiful. You know, so it's like that was really meant to be this very meta commentary about about medium, about animation medium in particular. And Mark gets everything he wants in order to make his version of The Little Prince. He gets the framing story of a little girl who learns of The Little Prince through a strange elderly neighbor. He gets The Little Prince sequences done in stop motion. And he gets a stellar voice cast that includes Jeff Bridges, Rachel McAdams, Paul Rudd, Marion Cotillard, Ricky Gervais, and Albert Brooks. He even gets his son to voice the little prince, or as he puts it, It's the captured laughter of my 10-year-old son. And he gets a budget between 70 and $80 million to make it all happen. This is all set in 2010, 
with the finished film intended to be in theaters in 2015. And the production was tough, but things actually went really well. And then we sort of divided and conquered and divided up the work between these two different facilities and two different teams. And it was, it was very ambitious what we were trying to do. And it succeeded primarily by the, the efforts of a very, you know, an amazing team. But there was a creative director on the stop motion side named Jamie Kaliri, who's a brilliant genius, like friend and like an amazing filmmaker and stop motion kind of, he's, he's just like an incredible guy. And he ended up becoming sort of the overseer, the creative director of that side of it. And that working alongside Anthony Yuhas, who is the production designer and character designer, who they approached it with such passion and, and care and made it possible because I had to spend a lot more of my time with the CG team. And so it made it possible for me to bounce back and forth and for us to do what we needed to do. I mean, I could go on. There's extraordinary artists that helped us bridge the gap between both mediums. It was not easy. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. I think it was probably the hardest thing for most of the crew to have ever done. But because most people on the show cared about the book so much and were affected by the book so much that everybody was committed to the project in a way that was very special, very unique. Yes, hard work from the animators all around. But the key to Mark's version of The Little Prince was the adaptation. He put a lot of thought into how the story should go. And yes, Previous adaptations of The Little Prince did cross his mind. I think for me, any other adaptation that existed that I had, that I knew of signaled a little bit more of a, okay, well, we can't do that. I mean, look, there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie that is like, makes it sort of like interesting. And, and the fact is like, I'd watched it with my kids a couple of times. Like I remember, I remember seeing it in a low pressure environment. So I don't remember having too much of a critique of it because of, again, I had my own feelings about the book. So it wasn't like I came away going like, I can't believe they did that. You know, like it was, it was, it's more like a, a curiosity. It was like a curiosity to go like, wow, look, that's what someone did with this. And, you know, Gene Wilder is the Fox. Like, I'm like, okay, wow. You know, so, but I did go back and really look at it closely once I had started thinking about our adaptation. And there came a point where I did look at it very closely and after I had really, really, really done a lot of work really analyzing the book or thinking the book through from many different angles, and there did come a point where I was definitely not a fan of some of the choices made in the movie because I felt like they took some liberties that to me were a bit against, against the book. I did, I did take issue with some stuff that I felt like kind of departed from what the book the, was doing and what it really meant or what, it, what what was at the heart of the book. But that's open to interpretation. So, you know, that's why I think it could be made every five years. Which isn't to say Mark's version doesn't depart from the book in a way, because it does. It adds new characters and a wraparound story that focuses on a little girl instead of a little boy or a little prince. And that is very much by design. You made uh, what I think is a very interesting decision uh, in in making the main character of of your particular film a girl. So little prince, little boy, but you're going to make a movie and the lead character is a little girl. So did you have any thought as to why you're going to change the sex? I mean, obviously the little prince is still a little prince. But I mean, like, was there some sort of intentional thought to 
have female characters in. In all honesty, I'd just gone through a process where I thought I was part of the solution in an industry. Animation industry is male-dominated, white male-dominated. I kind of woke up to finding myself in an industry that wasn't male-dominated because of any natural, like, reason. When I started to discover that there was bias in the industry, there was bias in in on-screen representation, there was bias about how teams are built for movies. Like, I... I made Kung Fu Panda very happy about the strong female characters that we had in the movie because as a father of a daughter and as a human being who cares about, you know, sort of all of our existence, I understood that it was important for us to have a more balanced cast in that movie and to not just make a movie that was going to be... And lo and behold, I had... I didn't understand the nuance enough to understand, like, just we had two strong female characters, but we still had an imbalanced cast. Our cast of Kung Fu Panda does not reflect the world that we live in. The world that we live in is is 50% female. So why wouldn't we tell a story that included 50% female characters? And I participated in a study with the Jeannie Davis Institute about uh, animation in particular and on-screen representation in animation. And I, I showed up at that, at that talk thinking I was part of the solution because of Tigris and because of, you know, Viper, these strong female characters that were... I was so proud to have my daughter watch Kung Fu Panda because, you know, we had... And I walked away realizing that that it still was, again, you know, this... We're, we're growing and learning always, but it was still part, part of this larger issue. The Gina Davis Institute is a nonprofit organization founded by actress Gina Davis, whose goal is to create gender balance, foster inclusion, and reduce negative stereotyping in family entertainment media. And yes, I'm reading that right from their website. After participating in that study, Mark began to think about The Little Prince and how there's only one female character in the book. And it's a rose. Not a great character either. <laughs> like, obviously written by a guy who has issues with women, right? So I'm like kind of contextualizing that and thinking about that. And, and, and I'm thinking about my own daughter and my own son and my own wife, my own life, my own experience. And part of what I what I recognized in that moment is that part of the challenge, part of the opportunity I had, if I was gonna pursue this larger story to support the book and to sort of surround the book, that it made sense for me to create an opposing force in the story that could potentially equal the little prince. And so a little boy who encapsulates the power of childhood and a little girl who encapsulates the power of adulthood. And that became an echo. They became echoes of each other. And one of the first images I had was an image of a little boy, a little girl holding hands in the watching the, the sunset and seeing the rose in the sunset. And that became sort of one of those key images that for me made it a movie and made it a true adaptation, a true tribute to the power of the book, because I don't believe that the book, because it has most almost exclusively male characters, is not intended only for a male audience. And so for me, it was a big part of what I was excited about and what I was able to engage everybody to be excited about is like, we're, we're going to create a balanced experience. And really the old aviator, the aviator is a little kid. He's a grown-up, but he's a little kid. He, he. So what I did was I took the main relationship in the book, the little prince, who's a boy, and the aviator, you know, who's a, a grown-up, 
I mean, it's a, a spirit of childhood, a grown up, and I transpose those on the little girl as a balancing force and the old aviator as a, a, a child to, to play the opposite of who the aviator was in the book, right? The guy struggling, a grown-up struggling to, to reconnect with childhood. And so, so anyway, so th these are all the deep, 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 deep reasons. Mark even hired a female writer, Arena Brignall, to flesh out his ideas into the screenplay for his version of The Little Prince. It was really important to me to hire a woman to partner with me to sort of help fill out my own ideas about the story and to help balance my ideas with ideas that I might not have as someone who hasn't grown up as a woman. It was a way to sort of, again, I wanted to bring as many people to the table as possible to sort of make sure we were telling a universal story. So that was a very, very much concerted effort. The problem that Mark had with his version of The Little Prince didn't come from the adaptation or the production. It was something else. Well, here's the deal. You couldn't explain it because I'm going to tell you things that I've never gone on record about that I know. And so I'm going to tell you the story because I've talked about this, but I've, and I never knew how to tell the story. So I'm going to practice on you. The Little Prince was scheduled to open in theaters in the United States on March 18th, 2016. On March 11th, one week prior to the release, Paramount Pictures announced they were dropping the film with no reason as to why. And the way I understand it is there was some debate over who actually had the rights. And so Paramount had made the movie, the live-action movie, so they had certain rights. The family believed they had certain rights. My producers aligned with the family. My producers um, enlisted me. We started making the project. We had a partnership with Paramount at one point. That partnership soured over issues relating to, and, and to be honest, there are details I don't know, but I know that a lawsuit did occur and a lawsuit did affect the production and created a dynamic where we had a home at Paramount until an executive who uh, left Paramount was we stopped being shielded in some respects because it was a, it was a fragile relationship. And what happened after that became very complicated because it costs a lot of money to release a movie. There was a deep commitment to release the movie, but there was confusion or lack of clarity on who was going to pay for the release of the movie. Paramount had an executive who believed in the picture, but once he was gone, a problem was created. And yes, this story should sound familiar. The movie was on track to be released, even though the release dates had been shifted a bit. The issue was, who was going to pay for that release? And so that's how we had our release date, which was kind of like, after a lot of challenges, it felt as though we were getting a release. And because the dates moved, and this is so stupid, but I'll just tell you, from what I understand, the dates moved, the theatrical release date moved, but they didn't change the release date for airplanes. So the air, it got bundled with other films. And so in the November before our supposed February release, or, or March, I can't remember the date, but it started showing up on airplanes. And when that happened, it 
breached the contract because it was a mistake on Paramount's behalf, but it breached the contract that that was that existed um, for the release of the movie because the release of the movie had to be in theaters before airplanes. And there's a bunch of other fucked up things and dynamics and whatever's, but ultimately because they made themselves liable, the only way they could make themselves unliable was to cancel the release. And the reason that they canceled the release was to free themselves of liability. But I believe the way they did it was to inflict pain on the producers. That's my belief, is that it was meant to be a retaliation. This story is really crazy. But then again, so is the industry. Paramount didn't want to pay for the release of The Little Prince for whatever reason. And once they realized the picture had been accidentally released to airplanes a few months ahead of schedule, they used that as a breach of contract to get out from paying for the release. It's just ridiculous. And after Paramount dropped The Little Prince from their schedule, the U.S. release for the movie was in limbo. Ultimately, it was Netflix who came in, bought, and then released the film in August of 2016 as a quote-unquote Netflix original. So ultimately, the sale to Netflix was, you know, it saved, it saved us in a way because we had been sort of orphaned by this horrific situation that, again, grew out of a very, very complicated, you know, legacy of movie deals and rights and, you know, complications and personalities and whatever. Like, however you want to read into, like, everything that happened. But here we had this beautiful, beautiful movie that basically got screwed over by a bunch of circumstances and a bunch of egos and a bunch of like fighting. And, and so ultimately, Netflix kind of saved the movie from getting completely shown. And, you know, it became the home for five years. And now it's reverted back to Paramount. So I actually, it's now back in sort of under the Paramount banner. It's under the Paramount wings. It's now sort of an official Paramount movie once again. But yeah, that's the untold story that involves a little bit of conjecture. And yes, the Netflix sale was an absolute savior in some ways. But it did mean that The Little Prince was skipping theaters almost entirely in the United States. I mean, heartbreaking is the word that I would use if it weren't for the fact that I had already gone to 12 different premieres in 12 different countries. I had seen the movie in different languages. I had shared the movie with audiences, like literally like all over the world. I had I'd already, like we on the crew had already experienced the highest highs of, of the Cannes Film Festival premiere that like, you know, there was already so much that we did get from it, but of course it was crushing to have things happen the way it happened and I went dark on social media because I, I was I was out there promoting it because there was very little promotion. It was like it was it was a very frustrating scenario in a lot of ways. And I didn't know what to say. And I was. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. I took it hard because I knew that it was going to be hard for the team. And granted, a lot of the artists that worked on the film had seen successful releases in their home countries of France. And, you know, they're. You know, it had a major theatrical release in Canada, you know, where we made the movie. And like, you know, it wasn't like no one had ever seen it before. But but I do think it was a tragedy for, again, what was so... It was so much a, a, 
acts of love and dedication and passion. And so like for that, it felt, it felt, it was tough. But the silver lining for Mark, and this really won't be a surprise, is that releasing it directly to Netflix exposed his version of The Little Prince to millions of people at once. And they started watching it. You know, the thing that happened when, when it released on Netflix that I didn't expect was I was, people were watching it multiple times. In that first week of release, people, someone said they watched it 27 times. I was like, don't do that. You know, and that was unexpected. And people were, I think, experiencing the film in a way that they maybe couldn't have in the theater. And that they, they and there was also an emotional hit that was coming from people watching it in their own spaces that I didn't expect. And so at this point, it's like, I just, I just hope the film lives on and it has a, you know, a staying power in that it was for anyone who finds the book, however they find the book, you know, hopefully they'll find the movie. And if anyone who finds the movie, I hope it brings them to the book. And that was all we were trying to do is like make that circuit complete, no matter which, which way you enter the conversation or the equation. For this reason, this version of The Little Prince is not a tragedy. Unlike what happened with the 1974 film, which had its release essentially halted, and the 1982 staged version, which never officially opened, and the Orson Welles version, which, well, never happened at all, a lot of people did get to see this and enjoy it. Mark even does a talk on the entire experience these days, starting with his days at Cal Arts and going into why the book has essentially changed his life. I close the talk when I do the hour-long talk by talking about that. And then I show a letter, the letter that my wife wrote me when she was supporting my choice to, to go to Cal Arts and to pursue my dream and to study animation and to move to California, even though we would be apart. She wrote me this most incredible letter that I found halfway through the production and it knocked me out because it was so supportive. It was so, it was just the, it was the letter you would want to get when you're trying to make a big decision, even though it's like, and she ended the letter by saying, I will always love you. And she said, it is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Like that's the quote she ended the letter with. And when I found that I was like, people are gonna think I faked this. Like, but that, like that letter became sort of the rocket fuel to sort of help through the production that I say almost killed me. Like there was so much that was hard, but it was like that, that stuff is what kept it going, you know? And, you know, yeah, so. I, I owe it all to my wife. <laughs> and one quick note. We did reach out to Paramount Pictures for a comment and have yet to receive a reply. If any response comes, we will be sure to let you know. Whether as individuals or as a couple like Mark Osborne and his wife, the messages and themes of The Little Prince have resonated with so many people around the world. This is why it has sold more than 130 million copies and been translated into more than 300 languages and dialects. It is a story that every generation shares with the next. My father uh, offers a book to my mother when they get married, uh, saying to my mother, this can help you as a guide for your life. I have the book. My mother read uh, to me the book and some pieces. And uh, of course, this book is, was with me all my life and is still with me, of course. I came much later to the story. I think I read it when I was 18 for the first time when I was a music student. And I was struck by the very unique atmosphere of the book. How it sets out its own, own world and speaks to people of all different generations. I think that's, that's the special thing about it. It's not 
can be seen as a children's book, but it's actually it's, it's much deeper than that. It's it, the universe. That was Anne Tournier and Terry Truck, who are part of the creative team leading a new stage production of The Little Prince, which opens on Broadway 40 years after that first failed attempt with Anthony Rapp back in 1982. Now, that show, composed by John Barry and the 1974 film, written by Lerner and Lowe, were both musicals in the traditional sense of that term, and both failed for different reasons. But that certainly isn't stopping Anne, who is the director and choreographer, and Terry, who is the musical composer, from creating a brand new interpretation for the stage. Their collaborator and co-director, Chris Morong, was the one who actually presented the idea of bringing the little prince to life. She, too, had her own special connection with this book and took her research very seriously as she examined past productions, including Mark Osborne's movie for Netflix. For me, it was just one of the most important uh, shock, I can say that, as an artist I had when I was 12 years old. I always say that I didn't read the book, I listened to it. In school, we, we played in this time of violin with a famous French actor, Gerard Philippe. And I just uh, remember very clearly that I was in tears after 15 minutes. It was like, uh, you know, when sometimes in your life of artists, a door is opening, you have a complete... Uh, new worlds in front of you and when you are 12 years old you suddenly you think oh somebody understand me somebody is like me i was a teenager you know and it was so beautiful with the world simple words so it's just little prince is just one of the most inspired things in my artist life of course with the research you know on the web what happened with uh, a show with the Little Prince? And uh, I can speak also about some a musical, uh, a French musical uh, was made by the composer Richard Rochelle, who made Notre Dame de Paris. He made this in, in the 90s, I think, and it didn't work. We knew about the, the Broadway show, but recently, in fact, uh, we were impressed to see that uh, guy like um, John Berry, I think. I said, wow, John Barry. And um, of course, we saw the movie, but the movie is not about the little prince. It's different. It's different, yeah. And their vision for the little prince was also going to be different, focusing more on dance and movement and acrobatics rather than acting and singing that you find in most musicals. This really stemmed from Anne's background as a director, choreographer, and contemporary dancer which led her to work with the famous Franco Dragon, who created many shows for Cirque du Soleil, as well as his own recent works like The Han Show in China, which was a huge technical and artistic spectacle with 110 performers on a gigantic stage. Yeah, we'd done a few productions together in various places in, in France and in Hong Kong. Uh, but we wanted something that we could really say that was uniquely this bringing together of, of the of the dance and the music. And, and at that point, we weren't thinking about the visual imagery, but like the videos that is also an important part of the show, and that came in a little bit later. So we got together in my house in, in Germany and started playing around with the ideas, and Anne had already mapped it out in different scenes. 
And we started looking at how we can express us in music. And that was, for me, a big part of, of it was, was establishing the atmosphere through the music that Anne could then transform into dance and uh, eventually we put a song out to it. It wasn't supposed to be a song. It just happened. And it is this free-spirited collaboration that is at the heart of their vision for The Little Prince, because each of them has such a strong and unique connection to the book itself. So in everything that they do, they want to honor the author's story as well as his own tragic experiences surrounding the writing of this book. When saint Exupéry wrote his story in the middle of the world in New York, he probably wrote this for himself, a very personal uh, thing. And he was probably very sad and destroyed uh, in his life, right? the, the war, but all of that. Probably he would never write his book uh, in a different time, different situation. And I keep this in my mind. I mean, I want to share this with the audience, with people. It's our life. We are artists. And I'm sure that when Saint-Exupéry wrote his book, he, he never, uh, he could never guess the success of this very personal thing he did, you know? We have to keep that in mind. We, we did our personal things on his work. We, we, we totally respect. We didn't want to change anything. And it's really funny to say that because it, now we are on Broadway. And on, normally when you do a show for Broadway, you do a lot of uh, concession. You can say that. You, you make compromise. Compromise, yes, a lot. Anne, Terry, and Chris have been working together since the mid-90s. So while they are familiar with each other's work, The Little Prince is still representing something new and a slight departure from other works that they've had together. I'm seeing The Little Prince. It's uh, the, the, the final step where we had, we, we achieved something that uh, we wanted a long time ago. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it sounds a bit weird, but we don't, I don't remember a single big argument that we've ever had of a content or in any of the shows that we've done. I see Anne as a visionary, what she wants to put on stage. It's just very visual, and I want to complement that. And if Anne says she needs something, I try and produce it as she wants it. Uh, if she wants something else, then I try something else. And in this way, we kind of work together and bounce ideas back and forth. And if I say this isn't going to work, then she knows I, I, it's not because I don't want to try it. So I think, I think we, do, we do work together well. It's, it's very harmonic. It's, yeah, it's, it's all, it always feels good. And at the heart of this production is movement and choreography, so that the performers, instead of telling the story through dialogue, they now express the ideas through their bodies. It's a choreographic language. That means uh, there is dancer and there is acrobat. We have a rogue performer, Indian performer, that uh, she, she's doing Malakin rope. It's unique in, on, in, on Earth. We have a lamp, uh, a street lamp. Later, uh, I was doing kind of pole. Uh, we have uh, the little prince who is traveling with his traps from planet to another, another planet. We have a fly with harness. And then we have uh, my, my, the way I'm uh, working is uh, I'm the dancer and the acrobat are all on the same level. There is no one character in the center and uh, surrounding some ensemble. Uh, no. When you look at the show, you cannot say this, who is an acrobat and who is a dancer. This is the same language. 
Now, this idea of ensemble really starts from this trio of creative collaborators. But while Anne, Chris, and Terry work together seamlessly and feed off of each other's ideas, they still have their own unique challenges to their particular craft and role when it comes to this production. For example, one of the iconic parts of The Little Prince book are its illustrations. So it gives a clear example of what the author had in mind as he created all of these various worlds and characters. So it was up to Anne to take this vision and incorporate it into her own. You think about the, the fox, you have the image in the book of the fox. Of course, you have the words uh, Saint-Exupéry draw. So when I created the, the scene of the fox, I had to think what I, I want to express, but also what not to, to destroy uh, what Saint-Exupéry did and to go into this his way, my way, and also to open the, the, all the vision of the, the audience, the future. The challenge, we didn't have uh, a lot because we went with our sincerity. We did what, we, what came from our heart, that's all. We didn't do anything else. Yeah, for the music, the, the challenge is a little more technical. Mm. Make it sound great, make it sound big. And also it had to be synchronized, obviously, with the choreography. That means it had to be very exact. Uh, there's not a lot of room for anything free-flowing. Well, there's, there's free-flowing, which makes it difficult for the dancers, but that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it also has to be synchronized with the video because the, because we're doing, using a lot of video mapping on the floor as well as on the back of the of, a, of the theatre. So things are moving and changing. It's all synchronized with the music. And that was a bit, bit of a technical challenge to get all, all of that really sadly good and, and running together. Now, Chris actually wears many hats for this production, serving not only as the co-director, but also as the on-stage narrator during the show. But I would say her most difficult task has been as the librettist, transforming the simple ideas of the book into a theatrical script. Because despite her love and affinity for the story of the Little Prince and its characters, unfortunately not everything from the book translates well onto the stage. We only uh, erased one chapter of the book because we couldn't do anything with that. The old guy uh, explaining to the little prince where are the, the universe, the planets. We were, we were not inspired to make a scene with that. But all the, the rest, all the scenes, all the planets, the little prince visits, you know, in, uh, in his journey, we could uh, keep an in the order, you know. After this, uh, the difficulty was for me was to uh, sometimes compact long chapter or something like that. And uh, uh, I love uh, the music from Terry. We would play in the in the well when they discover the well in the desert, you know. I did that like a, a songwriter. I say these sentences. On this music, like uh, you know, like a little like a slam, you know, when you speak on the on the music. This was a part of uh, I wouldn't say difficult, but uh, one sentence was uh, page twenty-two, the other one page twenty-five, you know, and click 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 click. In the scene, like um, the the fox, at one moment I said to Terry, I need a little box music, you know, something uh, because I want to say the what is essential is invisible to the eye. Now, just like 40 years ago, this new Broadway stage production also had to postpone its previews, although this time it had more to do with COVID than any troubles behind the scenes. 
But ultimately, this production will finally become the first ever Broadway production of The Little Prince. So that must come with a lot of pressure and expectations, right? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> no, we, we've already had success with this production in other places. And obviously, we wanted to be a huge success on Broadway. But we just take it as, a, as the next step, you know. Yeah, uh, I'm proud to bring this show in uh, Broadway because Saint-Exupéry wrote the book in uh, New York. So it's a loop. So maybe, finally, this team of French and British artists will have found the secret sauce to make The Little Prince viable and successful on the stage, giving audiences a tangible and enjoyable interpretation of this beloved story. Anne, Chris, and Terry have certainly put a lot of work into this and now have their own hopes for what audiences will take away from their production. There is a lot of responsibility in the book. Responsibility about the planet, ecology. Responsibility with each other. Friendship to respect each other. And I think this is a more important thing. And to don't forget that we are human. We are not alone. We are all together. I, I think it's very important. Me, I just hope the same uh, shock I had when I was 12 years old and listened for the first time this uh, story. I wish the same emotion and happiness to the people. I think that the times are a little difficult at the moment, and I think this is a story that can really give people hope that the world can be better and that we can listen to each one another and, and, and move on. But I want them to be emotionally moved by the piece. I don't think it's an intellectual process. I just want them to come out with a feeling of hope for the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. Visit moviemaker.com for more great podcasts, articles, and information about movies. If you love movies want to make them, or you're a movie maker yourself, then there's something for you at moviemaker.com. And there's also a really good newsletter you can sign up for. Trust me, I signed up for it, and I read it, and I enjoy it. Seriously. This episode was edited, written, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. And Patrick Oliver Jones. And check out Patrick's excellent podcast. It's called Why I'll Never Make It, and you can find it at whyillnevermakeit.com, or you can probably get it wherever you got this podcast from. Special thanks to our guest this week, Mark Osborne, the director of the animated version of The Little Prince, and from the current Broadway version, and when I say current, I mean as of spring 2022, that's Anne Tournay, Chris Moron, and Terry Truck. And hopefully I'm saying their names properly, because I haven't been so good with names this episode. Music in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. Links to all sources used for this episode and anything else that I could think is relevant will be found at my website. That is industrypodcast.org. Look for the show notes. And while you're there, you can leave a voice message. And if you're so inclined, you can even buy me a coffee, which I would probably use to buy coffee with. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts Podchaser, Spotify, or wherever it is that you find that you can leave a review. It may or may not help me get more listeners, but it will definitely make me feel good. And speaking of apps, have you tried out Repod yet? Yes, this is a fantastic new app that I've already told you about, but I'm going to tell you again. 
It's great not just for listening to podcasts, but also for sharing and interacting with hosts like me. I like to think of it as Facebook groups, but without Facebook, which honestly is exactly what I was looking for in this world. And now I have found it. Head on over there and say hi. If you want to contact me directly, you can. You can send me an email. It's dan at moviemaker.com. I'm also on Twitter at TheIndustry13, Instagram at Industry underscore podcast, and yes, still on Facebook at TheIndustryPod. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back again soon with another story of the things that went on in the industry. Be good. Be good.